like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're going to be uh, looking at the last uh, portion of Romans 12 this morning. Romans 12, and we're going to begin reading in verse 17. Romans 12 and verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, I will, it is mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. I want you to notice how this text is kind of uh, carved out with a, a call in verse 17, do not repay evil for evil to anyone. Then verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And often as you read through the Bible, you're going to find statements like that that are acting like parentheses around a a portion of scripture that show you that this is a unit of thought that God is seeking to use to communicate a certain truth to us. Over the last few weeks, we've been working through this chapter. We talked about verses 1 and 2 as a, as a beautiful reflection on the mercy of God poured into our lives and affecting how we live life together. So verses 3 through 7 gave us a compelling vision of life together, that we are the body of Christ, we are the family of God, collectively we are called the church of Christ. And so we represent in that way. And in this relationship that we experience together, we at times have troubles, right? Our relationships are not perfect. Yes, we are the church, but we, I think if we're being honest, are, are able to understand and see that at times, as family, we have conflict. The best of families experiences this. One writer stated this humorously, uh, this idea of the vision of the church. He said this, he said, to live above with saints we love, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, that's a different story. I think most of us can look at that and say, yeah, I mean, I, I love the church. I have been part of the church since I was four years old. My parents heard the gospel message, came to trust Christ, and I have spent the last, shocking, 53 years of my life around the church. And I, I love the church. I have a very uh, honest vision of the church. I know that the church can be the most beautiful place on earth. And I know there are times that in the, in the context of church life, we can struggle. And the text that we looked at last week helps, helps us to understand how to love each other in spite of our imperfections. If you're looking for a perfect church, just keep moving, okay? Because we're not that church, right? We're, we're a group of people who are striving by the Spirit to have our hearts set aglow by the love of God and the power of the gospel that would then begin to overflow from our lives towards one another. The, today the text moves from this focus inward to our, in our relationships with, with each other. The text now changes focus. The telescope of view, if you will, is moved to the outside. And it begins to address how we live life together out in the world around us. How we maximize impact and make a positive difference for the glory of God and the community that he has called us to live in. The question I want to ask you this morning is this. When people hear about the chapel, 
What do they think? What do they think? What is, the, what is the reputation of this church family? What are we known for? What do people know about us in the community that God has called us to be salt and light? What will allow us to stand out and make the difference that God has called us to make by being salt and light in this world where we live? And one writer phrases the question this way. He says, how do we give living proof of a loving God to a watching world? You know what I want? I want to be part of a church that gives to the people around us a compelling vision of what God's love is like and how powerful the gospel is as people observe us and our life together. The text that we're going to look at this morning clearly informs us about how we go out to make a difference that attracts the attention of a watching world to a loving God through people who live out that truth. Now, what the text is going to give for us is ways that we maximize that impact. So I'm going to step through four or five simple principles and then draw that to a conclusion in verse 22. So let's work our way through this text together. Verse 17 says, do not repay evil for evil to anyone. Now, when I read this verse, and in fact, I'm going to tell you this, when I read through this text, for me, this is one of those texts that has kind of gotten etched into my mind. I've memorized it unintentionally because the call that it gives is memorable and at certain levels alarming. This is one of those texts that I, I don't tend to like because this, to obey this text, I have to resist much about my personal tendencies, my personal makeup. The text literally means don't retaliate. Don't give evil in return for evil. When someone smites you, don't smite back. When someone offends you, don't offend back. It is natural. It is systemic in me when someone confronts or, or treats improperly. I have, a, I have a visceral response to that. I don't think about how I'm going to respond. I, my wife will tell you, I'm, pretty, I'm an impatient person. So even driving to sometimes for me can be a frustrating experience because when someone does me wrong in the car... I want to let them know that they did me wrong. I had this happen yesterday. I was uh, driving with my son-in-law over in Phillipsburg, and uh, a car in the left lane was coming decidedly into my lane, into the side of my car. I have a problem with my van. My horn doesn't work. I don't know about you, but when somebody like gets close to me and scares me, I want to let them know that they did. And now I, I hit that button and nothing happens. <laughs> and it, it's probably the Spirit of God has shut down the horn on my car. But I have this natural, I didn't learn to do this, it's what I do. It flows out of who I am. I've had the privilege the last 10 days of having our granddaughter in town. And uh, I remind my daughters as they're uh, anticipating children or raising children that these little children are sinners in need of a savior. They have a natural bent or disposition. Ava's now 18 months old. So she's kind of learned to express herself. Uh, she doesn't take kindly to you closing a drawer that she wants to open, and she likes to give back what you're giving to her, a, a corrective statement or squeal, if you will, that let you know, lets you know how she's feeling. This, this desire, this tendency to give evil back for evil is something that every person, I believe, wrestles with at some level, except maybe my wife. My wife is one of those unique people, okay? She puts up with me. I don't get much evil back, okay? And I'm not saying that she doesn't live with it. This uh, need for restraint when provoked is so powerful. And I think what this text is saying, if you want to make a difference in the world you live in, 
When you're confronted with evil, don't give evil back. Just, just stop. Ask God to give you a check in your spirit so that when you're offended by your mate, by your child, by your neighbor, by your coworker, by someone driving beside you, you don't express yourself. Express to them the love of God. So first of all, show restraint when you're provoked. And that is one way that we can positively influence the world around us. Secondly, in verse 17, he says, Instead of giving evil for evil, be careful or thoughtful about doing what is right or good in the eyes of everyone. And I think what that's saying is something like this. We are, if we're going to maximize our impact, we need to value a good reputation. Now, your reputation is not who you say you are. It's who people assume you are by observing how you live and how you respond to circumstances. That's your reputation. You don't select your reputation. You earn it. It's given to you. It's not something you put on a shirt. It's something people put on your shirt when they see you. It's how they think about you. And in this text, Paul's kind of nudging the church away from giving evil for evil. That's a negative. Don't respond with evil. Instead, cultivate a good reputation. Be careful to do what is noble praiseworthy, and praiseworthy in the eyes of everyone. And the idea is in the present tense. That is, I am to be continually thinking about ways to cultivate a reputation that makes Christ and his gospel look good through my life. And that takes an incredible amount of discipline. It takes an incredible amount of persistence to achieve this. One of the things I want to say to you this morning is your life is being observed. Every one of us. People around us are watching how we live and coming to conclusions about the God that we say we know and love. Be thoughtful. Strive in this, in this way to live in line with God's truth in an age of compromise. We, the church, tend to be deeply affected by the world around us. And we tend to sacrifice biblical principles to gain acceptance or to gain an audience. And this text is calling us to live in a way that is, is careful. Not to be infected by the a spirit of moral lackness that is present around us. We, here's what I think we tend to do. I think we tend to undervalue our testimony a reputation. We don't see it as weighty. We don't think that our lives make a difference. And I think this text is encouraging us to be careful, to be thoughtful, to do what is right in the eyes of everyone around us. Hebrews 10.24 says this. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to doing good, to good works. Right, we are to live in a thoughtful way to think, how can I, in the context of life together, encourage our church family to be doing good for the glory of God? That is the aim, I think, of this simple statement. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, the Bible says this. It says, the grace of God has appeared, this grace that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, that is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Listen, I think what Paul is saying is this. If you want to maximize the influence of your life in the world that God has called you to live in, you need to cultivate an eagerness to do good. 
to live a holy life. And we each, I believe, have opportunities in our daily life to do this by dealing honestly in the context of our workplace, by giving a diligent day's labor. I don't think that it's hard to stand out in these regards. In how we treat our family members, we can make a statement about what is good and how we respond to gossip matters. That we maintain sexual purity in a context of, of, of sexual looseness matters. It's how our light shines. Simple ways that we shine the light of hope for change in the context of our daily life. Be sure your behavior is above criticism and attractive because your reputation does matter. Verse 18 then goes on. It says, if it is possible, in this context of living in the world where offense comes, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, this text to me is, is fascinating. Uh, it, it gives a nod to reality when it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. But it gives me a call to something that is, 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 is very powerful for a watching world. It tells me I can't please everyone, but I can live peaceably with everyone. I can't guarantee how everyone's going to respond to me, but I can, by the power of the Spirit, control how I am responding to others. So in the context of offense or when evil comes, when mistreatment comes, when misunderstanding comes, the text is calling me to be restrained, to think about how to be at peace with everyone. Here's what Matthew 5 says. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Now, here's, here's, when I read that, here's what I say. If you live in a way that promotes peace, there's something about your life that will set you apart and cause you to be seen as a child of God. There's something about that lack of retaliation, that, that non-response when there isn't a good response, that attracts the attention of a watching world. They see a grace from God being revealed in your life. When I uh, was growing up, I worked in my dad's hardware store and spent a lot of time interacting with people. Now, if, if you've ever lived in a retail context, there's a reason that people tend to burn out in retail context. And the answer or the reason people burn out in retail context is customers. Okay? You exist to attract people to serve them and satisfy them. One thing I learned growing up in that environment was there are some people you can never satisfy. Sometimes I jokingly say to people, I got out of retail because I was sick and tired of people. Let me just think about that for a second. <laughs> okay? There's just, just something about some people, they are never going to be happy. And there were predictable customers who had a reputation. Hopefully they weren't believers, okay? Uh, they just, everything just set them off. Come into the store, kind of up in it, and... Uh, Occasionally, one of the employees would call and say, hey, Tim, can you come up front? I got someone here who's really, really mad. And I'm like, all right, I'll be right up. Now, one of the verses I memorized when I was a young person was Proverbs 15.1. Here's what it says. A soft answer turns away wrath. Grievous words make it better. No. <laughs> all right, a soft answer turns away wrath. Grievous words stir up anger. You want to make someone mad? Get in the face of a disgruntled customer. Get in their face and challenge them. You know what I learned? I learned to walk up 
after a couple bad experiences and, and, and trying to challenge and rationalize with someone who's all worked up, there's a wise way to respond to that. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. How can I help you? What can I do to resolve this situation? Would that not go a long way in our marriages? In our parenting? In our workplaces? And here's what I would argue. I don't think it takes a lot for a Christian to stand out. You just have to be slightly leaning towards being different. Be a peacemaker. Be known as someone who desires to see people get along. That's the nature of Christ's life when you look at it. So be peace-loving. And then verse 17 and 19 kind of carry a one-two punch. Uh, 17 says, do not repay evil for evil. 19 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for the wrath of God. And I think with this text, if if I'm going to just say it in the most simple way, I think this is a text that discourages retaliation. And, and let's just be honest, okay? Most of us have a tendency to be very quick and responsive emotionally when we're provoked. This text says, and, and, and it doesn't simply suggest that you avoid retaliation, it expressly prohibits, prohibits retaliation or revenge. It's not suggesting that you try to calm it down a little bit. It's saying that it disrupts your Christian testimony so strongly That as Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he calls us to an absolute prohibition of this idea of retaliation. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Now, what is it that's being prohibited in this text? Okay, what is it? I'm going to give you an illustration from, or a statement about adults and a statement about children. Okay, for adults, retaliation is a sophisticated Determination to get even. Okay? A sophisticated determination to get your pound of flesh in whatever way possible. What does that assume? That assumes that we tend to brood on, meditate on, and cultivate ways to settle the score. And until you can see it in that kind of blunt term, you're probably not going to think that your tendency to retaliate is that bad. In children, I think, it's, uh, I think it's this. I think it's an impulse to get even. It's not well thought out. It's just instinctive. Okay? For adults, I think it is a, a, a predisposition, a, a, a sophisticated determination to get even. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Why does God expressly and completely forbid retaliation? Why would he take that so seriously? And the answer to that question comes up in the rest of the verse. Don't take revenge, my dear friends. The assumption is what? As I'm living my life in the world that I live in, there are going to be times when offenses come, and I am going to have to find a way to respond to it in a way that honors God and is peaceable. They're going to come. It's a matter of time. The reason I'm called not to retaliate, not to take justice into my hands, is not because God forbids all forms of justice. No, if you go into chapter 13, immediately following this text, you're going to find a discussion of government, which has the responsibility of bringing justice. 
of bringing a response to bad behavior, of having an appropriate or adequate punishment for a misdeed or a crime that is committed. That's the job of government. So this text is not forbidding retaliation. It's just saying that you as a Christian should not take the work of God and the work of government into your personal hands. Because every time I do that, life gets messy and my reputation is destroyed. And my being thought of as a peacemaker doesn't come to mind. This text powerfully calls us to avoid retaliation because of a promise. Notice what it says. Leave room for God's wrath. Why should I do that? Because it stands written. There is a statement in Scripture. God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay justly, says the Lord. So how do I keep from being vengeful, from retaliating? How do I do it? I remember that there is a God, as we sung earlier, seated on his throne, who's got it covered. And so I don't have to live plotting a sophisticated response to the evil of others. Here's what will happen. You will become a prisoner to that lifestyle. You will never be known as a peacemaker, and you will trust yourself instead of God. The reason I'm told not to take revenge, not to retaliate, is because that is the prerogative of God. And I need to let God do God stuff. I am not qualified to mete out judgment against other sinners because I am one myself. The best thing you can do to defeat a retaliation, if you, you find yourself, you say, I am just so reactionary and pent up and tense. You need to saturate yourself with the gospel of God's grace. You need to know that everyone you want to retaliate against, everyone you want in a sophisticated way to make pay, you deserve it just as much as they do. I say to parents, when you discipline your children, when you fight against this vengeful spirit the children have, remember something. Remember that you are a sinner speaking to a sinner. Don't come down to your child. Come to your child. Resonate with them. Empathize with them. Speak truth into their lives. But more than that, show truth in their life. Be a peacemaker so when you come to them, they trust you. Because no, you're a son or daughter of God who's been overcome by the grace of God and you can't wait to live it out. This text calls us to a promise. We avoid retaliating because we're trusting a promise. God has said, I will repay, says the Lord. Psalm 37, 12 says it this way. It says, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. That's a fascinating statement, and you might say that's also a disturbing statement. The Lord laughs at the wicked. What does that mean? Does it mean that God is mocking them, making fun of them? I don't think that's it. I think, I think it's similar to uh, a parent who's uh, wrestling with their child, and they stick their hand on their head, hold them at distance, they say, swing away. And when that's happening, you laugh because the child has a determination to strike you in this wrestling match or whatever it is, but they're unable to, and their inability to lay hold of you is at some level humorous. It's ironic. I think that's how this text is stating it. That the wrath of God that is being expressed. The reason he laughs is, is this. Here's what the text says. He knows their day is coming. 
He knows the day of justice is coming. The reason I don't have to live for payback and retaliation is that's in God's hands. That's his prerogative. I can let that go and know that, God, I'm going to trust you with that. And I think one of the other reasons that the text prohibits retaliation is my, in my anger, I tend to go in a bad direction. That's why I say to parents too, when you're correcting your child, never, never do it in anger. Make sure you sit back and meditate on the fact that you're a sinner going to help a sinner with the aim of restoration, not to get a pound of flesh. Okay, the aim of it is to confront in an appropriate way that seeks to bring restoration. Psalm 37, 25, the psalmist says, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Ephesians says this, it says, uh, it says, uh, what you sow, you will reap. Okay, that's the justice of God. The reason I don't have to pay people back is because God is taking care of this balance, this issue of justice. That's in his hands. And Jesus gives us a beautiful example of this in 1 Peter 2, 23. It says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. There's the exact word. As he hung on the cross, when they hurled insults, he did not retaliate. When he suffered tragic injustice, he made no threats. He entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly. And that's a a, a beautiful picture of how we ought to respond. That that person who is unjustly attacking or, 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 or maligning my character, I need to let that in God's hands. This is a call to not retaliate, to trust the promises of God, and to be free. I realize there are people sitting here this morning, many of you who have suffered unimaginable injustice, things that I don't understand, things that I personally have not experienced. And I understand from this text and from from talking to people, it is so tempting to be bitter and to justify toxic attitudes. And I beg you this morning, trust in this very simple promise. God says, I got that covered. Rest in me. Give that over to me and go on and live your life for my glory. In verse 20, this uh, text gives us a powerful uh, resolution or conclusion to this text. Verse 20 says, on the contrary, to what? Retaliating. Okay? So you're in a situation, you're provoked. Instead of retaliating and making someone pay, here's what God says. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And you know what I say when I read this? Are you kidding me? And here's what I want to tell you. That is not my flesh response. When someone provokes me, the first thought in my mind is, how can I bless them? That's not how I respond. I wish that was true. It's not how I respond. It's only as the Spirit of God begins to lay hold of my heart and say, not that, this. Not retaliation. And you're not going to like this. Because this this last text, I think, is, is powerful. Instead of retaliating, what does God want you to do? He wants you to serve your enemies. I want that to settle in. You know, here's here's what I know. I know I can get up on a Sunday and preach about serving others as I did two weeks ago and last week a little bit. And I know for many of you, there's something compelling about that because when you do that, what do you feel? You, you, You tend to feel good, right? So go help people, great. I'll go help people. I feel good when I help people. I do. That's not what this text is saying. This text is calling us to love 
our enemies. And I, I want to give a definition to enemy so that we understand the context. And an enemy is someone who intentionally has brought harm to my life. Thought about and executed something against me. That's what an enemy is. It's not someone who makes a mistake. My wife is not my enemy when she says something to me that I find hurtful or disrespectful. Doesn't make her my enemy. Okay, enemy is, is a totally different category than that. It's intentional. It's plotting. It's to them that God says, to us, serve them. And, and let, me, let me go one step further with this. The text doesn't say, when your enemies are really aggressive and against you, learn to tolerate them. Kind of give a non-response. Okay? Because if that's what the text said, I'd say, I'm down with that. Okay? I think that's, that's kind of a goal I can move towards. But that's not what this text asks for. This text pulls me into a realm where I'm saying, I, I don't know what I think about that command. I don't like that command. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Sustain him and relieve pain in his life. That's not natural. Here's what I believe. I believe only a heart burning in the spirit can love people in that kind of a way. That's why I think this whole text comes together beautifully. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, what do they do? Paul says, I beg you by the mercies of God, don't let the world shape you by these kinds of things. Let God shape you in light of his mercy and grace. Surrender to the pliable, working hand of God in your life. Let him make you into an instrument that knows how to serve enemies and love them in a way that captures the attention of a watching world. It is a call to actively do good for our enemies. And I believe this call is the distinguishing mark of a believer. I don't think you can read the crucifixion account and not realize that one of the most stunning statements in the crucifixion account is when Jesus looks at those who plotted his death and says, Father, do them good. Forgive them. Now, if that falls out of your mind, you will find yourself incapable of serving your enemy. But if you allow your heart to be saturated with the gospel to the point that the Spirit causes you to be burning by the Spirit, aglow with the power of God, then you will begin to find at some level, hopefully by God's grace, an increasing desire and capacity to start to love the people that you tend to hate and to stop retaliating against the people who do you harm. Because that is a prison that I hope God will preserve you from. When I read this account, this text, here's the story that comes to my mind from the book of Acts. I think of the martyr Stephen. And I think of a man who is being stoned to death. And here's what the text tells us. He catches a vision of Jesus, of a risen Savior. And as the intentional stones are pouring upon him. There's, the text two times says there was a man standing there in authority. His name is Saul. And we know Saul ultimately is the apostle Paul. And Saul is watching over the 
murder and martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen, in the midst of this, catches a vision of Christ. He turns his eyes heavenward. He sees an exalted, risen Savior. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, here's what I would argue. I will never love difficult people in a way that is compelling unless I know the gospel of God's grace. I will find this text to seem at some levels very ridiculous and awkward. Not compelling. But if I saturate myself in the gospel of Christ and come to understand the depth of his love for me, I will find it to have a transforming effect on my life. And folks, this is what happened in the early church. The early church gave to the ancient world a compelling view of Christ that could not be resisted or ignored. It's captured in a book by Rodney Stark. He's a professor at Princeton University. The book is called The Rise of Christianity. In it, he notes the extraordinary expansion of Christianity in the first and second centuries, meaning how did this small group of 12 men ignite such a beautiful thing as the Christian church? How did that happen? That's the question. How did that happen? His answer is this. He was puzzled by how a marginalized, persecuted, often uneducated group of people were able not only to survive but thrive. He concludes that a key reason was their willingness to sacrifice themselves out of love for each other and for their world. This sacrifice, this selflessness, released an explosion of light and heat the world had never known. Burning by the Spirit. They captured the attention of a difficult world. Stark's article on Christian history shows the powerful proof that Christians offered during the two great plagues that swept through the Roman Empire in 165 and 231 A.D., killing one-third of the population each time. He writes, The willingness of Christians to care for others was put on dramatic public display. Pagans tried to avoid all contact with the afflicted, often casting the still-living person into the gutters. Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick, even though some died in doing so. Christians also were visible and valuable during the frequent natural and social disasters that afflicted the Greco-Roman world because their hearts were set aflame. And a watching world saw the power of the gospel of Christ and the love of people who, though they were weak, though they were poor, though they were uneducated, brought a transformation to the ancient world. This text then concludes by saying, by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Now, there's two ways you can look at this. Primarily, I boil them down to two views. One is, kill them with kindness. Okay, there are some people that delight in, be, in making people feel bad by doing good for them. Okay, I'll zing them. The person that doesn't deserve anything from me, I'm going to give it to them, make them sweat. Okay, that, that's one view. The view that I think is more in line with the overall tenor of this text of not taking revenge, even in doing good, I think leads us to a different conclusion. I think heaping burning coals of fire on their head 
leans in this way, and this is the way the one commentator says it. He says, it is the burning sense of shame, contrition, and change of mind that results from unexpected, undeserved, incredible kindness that is received. When that person realizes how horribly they have treated you and you still respond in love and grace, there's something about that that God says, if that doesn't affect their heart, nothing will. No revenge, no retaliation will ever change them. But a heart set ablaze by the Spirit impacting and affecting with loving acts of service towards one who has intentionally brought harm to a person eventually begins to bring shame. That's the effect of it. They begin to feel bad for their bad behavior. And here's the hope. The hope is that in loving difficult people, they will realize the love of Christ is emerging from my changed heart. It is owing to God's grace at work in my heart. And by God's grace, we would pray that that would bring that individual to a place of repentance. Verse 22 concludes this by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look, here's what I understand. We live in a world that at times can be very difficult. And I I don't think we as Christians should be naysayers, always constantly complaining about the nature of the world we're in. I am not about that. Because if I buy into that kind of mindset that leads to kind of a, a subtle bitterness in my heart that begins to express itself in, 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 in spats of anger in my life, what, what's happening? I am actually being overcome by evil. It's, it's defeating me and the work that God is striving to do in my life. And what's the text say? Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil by good. Unleash a wave of the love of God through acts of selfless service in your life to people that don't deserve it so that they will get a glimpse of what the gospel of God's grace is all about. This is how we give living proof of a loving God to a watching world. When we're provoked, we respond in unanticipated ways. When people are devoted enemies, we show love. I've told you a story one other time about my dad. My dad at 52 years old uh, five years younger than me, was uh, stricken with heart disease. He has coronary spasms. Remember at 52 years old, we were jackhammering concrete that had rebar on six-inch uh, patterns underneath of it. It was an exhausting day. At the end of that day, my dad went down, taken to Grandview Hospital. The next day, I went up to visit him. And I remember walking into his, uh, his hospital room and there was a man next to him who I, I, I won't say his name. Um, that man had done more financial harm to my dad in his business experience than anyone else that I was aware of. So when I walked into that room, what did I do? I ignored that guy. My sophisticated side was saying, I'll ignore him. I'll tell him that he means nothing to me. That's what I mean by adult sophistication. We can dismiss people. We do it in our homes. We do it with our kids. That was my natural response to that circumstance. Walked over by my dad's bed. He says to me, uh, 
go say hi to that man. And I thought, why? And here's what it was. He needs to know the love of Christ. And uh, the financial harm is really nothing in light of eternity. That was one of those things that just put this truth in the living picture. And I remember that. When you have the right to retaliate, don't. Because God loves you. He saved you by his grace. Be amazed. Be set ablaze by the Spirit. In the early church, this is what happened. They were aglow with the love of God. And look, there is nothing that we experience in the American church that comes close to what they experience. Nothing. Nothing comparable. I mean, I get mad if someone just disrespects me. May God help us. May God help us to give living proof of love the loving God to a watching world. Because when we're offended, we don't take revenge. And we understand God's prohibition on retaliation. And in light of that, we trust him with the outcome. We trust him to make things right. To be a God who is just and holy, yet loving and wise. Who wants to work through our church to make a difference in the world around us as we go from here. May God help us. Father, as we conclude this service and as we conclude reading this memorable and at times disturbing and compelling text, help us to confess, Lord, our own tendency to retaliate. God, I pray that as we become lovers of enemies, we will find rising up in our church family Stronger families, stronger marriages, stronger work relationships, people committed to doing good and loving others, even enemies, in a way that is so compelling that we more and more begin to see people swept into the kingdom of God because they have come to know his love through our reputation and our life lived on Main Street. God, compel us. Convict us when we have fallen short. God, for for some here this morning, perhaps there is a a tendency to be overcome with retaliation and revenge. And God, I pray that you would give that individual this morning just freedom in their heart to say, God, forgive me. I am so prone to pay back. Thank you that in Jesus you do not pay back, but you forgive freely. Help me to begin to practice this beautiful gospel message in the world I live in. God, we so desperately need your help. And we pray for that this morning. If there's someone here, Lord, that needs to pray with a friend, I pray that they'll come up uh, during the closing song and seek help, seek help from you to learn how to love difficult people. Help us, God, to go from here to be light for you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.